Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Courtney. I'm here with my spouse, Royce, and together we are the ace couple. And today we are actually not alone. We have a very special guest with us who we are so excited to have and very excited for you to meet. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Tyler Stevenson. You could call me Tiger Songbird. Uh, find me at Tiger Songbird on Twitter. I'm actually a writer do-it-all person, teacher, everything in the nature, and I'm also asexual and love to talk about all things asexuality. I've been featured in multiple publications, done expose articles, and I've also been pretty big on the internet, ran my own Reddit forum, and also started a Reddit subreddit for asexuality a few years ago online. So the Reddit are asexual. I am the head moderator. So we actually started that up a few years ago, kind of got that off the ground. And personally, I'm just an all around average asexual person that loves to do things like sing and just have fun. I'm ready. So I'm happy to be here. Yay. We love it. We are so glad to have you on. We've been talking about having guests for a while, but we've been a little slow to figure out the microphone and recording situation, but we're, we're just so excited to see where this conversation takes us. So since, since we are first and foremost in a sexuality podcast, we would love to hear just a little bit about your relationship with asexuality. What does asexuality mean to you and what has your personal journey been like? So I think the define asexuality, asexuality being defined as having little to no sexual attraction. For me, when I have, and personally in my relationships, I personally have all platonic relationships. I consider myself pretty much in the bridge between either aromantic or in the gray zone. So I'm, I mean, I've never really been in a relationship, never been in like on a date or anything like that. It's just never been something I've ever really been into uh, dating and relationships. I prefer all my friends being like my friends and stuff like that. And my friends are my really deepest relationships. Like they're like my, you know, go-tos, my ride or dies. So I, you know, get in relationship fulfillment from my end, from my friends, because they always are there for me. They always consider me and, and stuff like that. So friends and family are kind of like the deepest parts. So if I consider you like my friend, I consider you like my family, like we're blood, like I'm going to stick my neck out on the line and do whatever. I need to do to help you. So those are my things, but it doesn't involve anything of romantic or sexual nature. That is so interesting that you you mentioned the aromantic spectrum, possibly a gray area, because that's actually something I've been exploring a little bit about myself. I, I don't think I am as hardline aromantic as I am hardline asexual. But yeah. I, I know I have a capacity for experiencing romantic attraction, case in point, with my spouse, what we have is romantic rather than pure platonic. But it seems to me to be something that's very conditional and very infrequent. So I, I've kind of settled myself on like a demi-romantic kind of spectrum, but I've also just always been someone who's wanted to be in a relationship, but it sounds like to you, it's just not a factor. You just, you'd rather have your friendships and family and, and yeah. that fulfills you. Yeah. My personal thing is uh, I've always wondered why it was so weird that like people would say just friends or the friend zone sort of things. I actually wrote an article or wrote a, like a post on a blog site one time that talked about like reclaiming the friend zone because like, people will say we're just friends or in the friend zone and people will be like, oh, I just got friend zone. And I'm like, 
Well, if I consider you my friend, that means it's like the deepest honor. Like I think of you as a really great person that I would like to hold on to. And I've always wondered like, why is the friend zone or like being just friends so bad for so many people? Like, why is that? It never got, it never like confused me or it always was one of those things that like was, I consider mystifying things like, okay, you don't want to be friends with someone like that's good, right? Like you want to be friends. I mean, you have a good relationship. Some friendships are just <laughs> relationships. My friends have been, I'm great. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't understand the devaluing of it. Like I've had friendships longer than some of my friends have had relationships with their current partners. Um, I've known them longer than they've known their you know, respective mates. And I'm just like, you know, I don't understand the devaluing of it. So I, I just think, you know, having a good friend, being someone like my buddy or my my go-to, which I have quite a couple of personally, you know, those those sort of things mean an exponential amount to me. So it's learning that was a big deal. And it was also kind of confusing also to learn it because like when you got to be friendly with somebody all, all the way, people just kept trying to like relationships on you and like, oh, you're friends with that person. So you're obviously dating them or you're real. You always hang out with them. You guys must be dating. So that was something that I had to like clear the air. I was like, we're not dating. I'm just, we're really good friends. And it's just, I realized we, we talk about that, the amatonormativity factor and shout out to Tara Mooney on YouTube. She does a great video on that. That's something that I've never understood as a relationship factor. Like why are friendships, why is there an echelon where like romantic relationships are somehow here and then friendships are like below that somewhere on a lower tier? I don't know. I think I've seen that as sort of a a defining moment in a lot of people on the A spectrum, whether it's asexual or aromantic is this point in their life where they they gain the awareness to actually look at everyone else around them and realize, oh, all of you are not thinking and experiencing life in the exact same way that I am. Like, in what way am I different? I used to think that I noticed being different as a kid, but I always jumped through some hoops to reason it as a difference in expression instead of experience. Like, like maybe everyone else is just a little extra. Everyone else is just exaggerates here and there and that we're, we're actually experiencing the same world. And I finally had to get to this point of saying, no, we, we experience everything differently. The relationships we're in, the way that we interact with people. Yeah. Going through my story, I, I, it was one of those weird things. Like when I was 17, my friends were all talking about the fact that they were like wanting to have kids when they get older or getting married. And I looked at my friends and was like, I didn't want to do any of that. I like, I have no desire for that. And they looked at me all weird and strange. And then I remember being in high school and there was like this discussion amongst, you know, classmates, they were talking about talk about sex lives and stuff like that. And some people were talking and I was just sitting there like all confused because I was like, oh my gosh, you guys are really doing this? Like, I thought this was like a <laughs> joke. And I literally looked at it like, I thought you guys were, just, I thought this was a joke. Like, you know, American Pie is like, that's not real, right? That's not a real thing. It turned out, oh my gosh, not only is it real, I'm actually like the anomaly to the situation. Like, okay, now I, I realize that was at that moment when I started to realize I was different. I thought like everyone else was weird and I was the normal one. And then I found out I was the weird one <laughs> and everyone else was doing something different. Or maybe I'm, I wouldn't say weird because that has connotations of like negativity, but more like I was the one that was, I guess, different from a standout from the rest of the crowd doing what they, everyone else was doing. So yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. And that is just, I mean, that that is peak ace experience, but I think it's also just general the queer experience where there has come a time where we just realize as queer people that 
there is something fundamentally different about what we're experiencing versus what the general society is telling us we should be feeling or what we're witnessing other people feeling. And I, I kind of feel like I was led astray for a couple of years as, as a, as a young woman, because there, there was a period of time where other, other girls my age, when we were getting to like age 13, age 14, where we, we began to understand what sex was in that it was on the horizon soon for some of us. And, and we were all just kind of traumatized by it. Like we'd have conversations being like, that can't possibly be a good thing. Like that sounds horrible. And of, of course, where, I, where I grew up, we were told, you know, it's, it's a very something you should save for marriage, but also, you get the, you kind of get the carrot and the stick. Like if, if it's within marriage, it's going to be the sweet, wonderful, beautiful thing. But you also get the stick of like, your first time is going to be painful. You're going to bleed. And so you so had a below only... average sex education in school too. It's true. It's true. I did. It was awful. It really was. But like the, this group of girls, we were like, sex sounds horrible. It's going to be this horrible, traumatizing thing that's painful. And so I, I felt like I was totally right there with everyone. Like, I have no interest in this. But then within the span of the next year or two, all of these people I had these same conversations with were like, oh, yeah, I started having sex with my boyfriend and it's great, actually. You should try it. And I'm like, what? Excuse me. You don't still feel exactly the same way. So that that sort of lended itself also to like the late bloomer stereotype that I think a lot of aces get like, oh, you'll get there. You'll find someone. But no, I didn't grow out of it. No. Yeah, it was kind of one of those weird pendulum shifts. And uh, like when you're like 12 or 13, people are like, no, 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 don't have sex, don't have sex. And they're like, I'm not having sex. Although there were some instances of like, you know, there were some people who were very, very young and mm-hmm. having sex and stuff like that. And there was always that, but usually it kind of went to a shift. And then all of a sudden, when you turn around like 15 or 16 and 17, and it was just like, when I started getting to my senior year, it was like, everybody was talking about doing it and stuff like that. And then it was like, you, now you haven't done it. So that's like weird that you have it. So I mean, that's kind of weird. We could talk about sexual demographics and stuff like that. I think actually, which is kind of ironic because starting around when I was in high school, the age was like a people like considerably having their first experiences started actually getting older. So it actually started to move backwards in time. So like people always say like this generation or that generation was this generation is just all promiscuous and, and stuff like that, making, you know, moral statements and stuff like that. Cause I don't want to get into that because we are actually getting more knowledgeable and the more knowledge gets power. And that actually helps, you know, learning sex education, which I'm a huge proponent of. I actually have written a my, one of my articles, my first articles on asexuality was why LGBTQ plus sex education is so vital and why it's good and why everyone should be on board with it. And one of the statistics I quoted was that actually those who go through and a comprehensive sex education course actually end up having a later uh, sexual experience, one that's actually more likely to be of a consenting, more fulfilling type of relationship instead of doing so early. It's a major safety issue, too, if people aren't getting the proper education. So I'm I'm constantly baffled by how horrible my sex education was, and I can only hope we're going to continue going forward. Uh, I'm in the club with that. Mine was simple. Just don't do it and don't even think about it. It was literally like the Mean Girls movie where the uh, gym teacher is like, don't even think about it. Don't do it. Don't do it. If you do it, if you'll you die. If you have sex, you will die. <laughs> die. 
you're going to die and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I literally had that happen. Um, oh, so. me too. So you, you're in Oklahoma. Is that where you went to school as well? Yep. Born and raised. Okay. I am a, I am a Okie, 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 Okie. So Okie dokie. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Oh man, because yes, my I I don't know if you got the slideshow, but our sex education was basically here is a slideshow of pictures of the worst possible cases of STDs and STIs, and here's why you shouldn't have sex. And yeah. and so by that point, we're all like, okay, we'll never have sex in our entire lives, and until a few years later, then all of a sudden, I'm looking in confusion at everyone else who all of a sudden has an interest. <laughs> Yeah, I had to look up pictures of gonorrhea before, which was mm-hmm. still a very traumatizing experience. When I was a freshman in high school, uh, we had to do an STI presentation on like different STIs and I got gonorrhea. Oh, and you can imagine having to look up pictures of gonorrhea and I had to show them to the entire class as a presentation, which really felt really awkward to me and also just, uh yeah, there's an there's an added layer to that where you're you're making the students present that to other students. Yeah, every all... student is the the face for an STI. Oh no, <laughs> the cringe face, the cringe of it all. It's just so. It was it was one of those like, oh no, that that would be enough. I mean, if if there was such a thing as being beyond scared straight, that would have been it. <laughs> that <laughs> yes. moment would have been it. If I were, if I could have possibly been scared straight. Would have been the moment once I saw pictures of people with gonorrhea and how bad that looked. Nightmare. Mm. Uh, mm. Nightmare. So, yep, that was our sex education. That is that is property of Oklahoma schools and Bible Belt. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad you mentioned the Bible Belt because we we want to talk about that because Royce and I are both raised Midwesterners. Royce grew up in Kansas. I grew up in South Dakota. Which South Dakota is the the northernmost state of all the ones that we're talking about. But some people who don't know much about South Dakota are kind of surprised to hear that it it can be incredibly conservative and sometimes reminiscent of the Bible Belt. It, we, oh, yeah. But the joke was kind of like, we're called South Dakota, but we're not really in the South. <laughs> so, yeah. But what... What is your overall experience just being an asexual person in the Bible Belt? Let's take a walk down, a stroll down memory lane, I guess. So growing up, I'm born and raised in the same town I've been in. So I'm from small town Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. You can find that on a map. It's actually, while it was small town when I was like starting, it's actually like the fifth largest city in the entire state of Oklahoma. It's like over 100,000 people in it. So it's actually quite gotten quite large in my lifetime. But the values of like stay very, very rigid conservative in its time. Some of the people are great. I love some of the people. And I know quite a few great people here. But um, it's just very, very conservative Bible Belt. I mean, I almost say it like this. You could spit in any direction on the street and I guarantee you, you did a church. <laughs> that's how that's how many churches there are. I heard a, I had a pastor growing up who referred to it as Jesus Disneyland. Oh. Like there's, there's there is a church everywhere in Oklahoma. You could go on any street and probably find there's a church, probably a first Baptist church somewhere in that town. And you could probably just cross an intersection and be like, oh, there's a church right there. There you go. There's a church right there, right there, right there. And it's just in every single direction. So growing up, obviously, I come from a Christian family. My mom is 
My mom grew up in the church. She grew up singing choir in the church. I actually have a brother who's a pastor now. So I actually grew up in a very religious family. Not really super like religiously like uptight, like one of those like families from Carrie, like mom from Carrie that would like beat you with a Bible in the hand, right? Type of family. But it was, you know, Christian values and everything like that. God first type of family, which I have no knock against people of religion. I just want to preface that. I have no knock whatsoever uh, against people of religion. I'm uh, somewhere in the limbo state. I, I loved Jesus, but not so much like organized religion so much. But I don't knock anybody who's religious. But when I grew up and I was 13 and, and everything, I was in church. We'd be in youth groups and we'd always have to like confess our sins and go to prayer confessionals and confess to a youth pastor and everything like that, talking about like what we did or what bad stuff we did. And one of the weird things was just kind of like how many people like confess sexual sins or like they talked about like sexual sin, obviously, like premarital only and stuff like that. And it was just like, I never really had those moments. But like, as far as I was concerned, like people were holding me up as the good boy of the group which was kind of weird like when you grow up in bible belt culture like if you're you know, like you're supposed to be you know pure till marriage and you're supposed to be the abstinence only kind of education i didn't learn about asexuality until i was way older so it kind of really clouded my focus because i was thinking i was like i'm straight but i'm like not really that good at it because like everyone else is like really different from how my experiences are so i just kind of defaulted to like being straight and then just like not really because i wasn't really interested in having sex with anyone um i wasn't really interested in all that stuff but it was just like well i mean there's i'm not like gay because i'm not into my like my friends who are guys but i'm not also like really into having sex with like opposite sex either with the opposite sex. so it's like what am i doing and it was just one of the things of growing up in bible belt culture really made me super confused personally because it was just like okay i can't figure out what heads from tails from this thing like am i supposed to be like that guy that like goes out and tries to hunt all the women and, and stuff like that because or am i like just really really good at being pure or like being chased like i'm just you know then there's this thing they call it like a gift of celibacy uh which is like priests are called like you have this gift of celibacy like you can go without having you know sex and and be a priest and grow up and i actually looked and inquired to being like a priest at one point and it was like you have this gift but then i realized like celibacy is different from asexuality because i was considering myself celibate for the longest and i was thinking okay i'm just celibate right and celibates just don't think about it or don't even imagine having sex but then i realized you know with the church scandals and spotlight <laughs> thank you spotlight the movie uh, realized that celibacy was not what I imagined or cooked it up to be. It was like, no, they, they still have the same appetite that I didn't have. They have the same, they still have the same attraction that I didn't have. And I was just like, okay, then what am I doing? And as soon as I got older, it's weird. The, the church does this weird kind of shift. Like when you're pure and you're 17 or you're 16, it's like, yes, that's good job. Good job. You're doing great. Praise God, right? And hold you up as like a heralded example of like moral rectitude or righteousness. But then when you start to get to 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, now the expectation, once you get out of like college, people start expecting you to start getting on to this whole like marriage and family and, and you know, being a family man, a, a leader, a head of the family, kind of having children, getting married matrimony being one you know it's the saying and the bible says like one bible verse that always sticks to my mind that a pastor always would quote to me would be like first corinthians 7 which is 
I say it's good to be unmarried, but for those who can't get married. And then they also quoted like one important, always important thing that he always quoted was like first Corinthians seven. And it was like, uh, do not deprive one another of your body. And mm. like, that was something that always stuck at me. And that was one of the beginning points of like deconstruction phase of me. Yeah. So that at that moment, I started to like have the deconstruction moment. It was like, so you're telling me like, I can't possibly not. Cause I actually had a meeting with a person who was like, I feel all this pressure. Like everyone's pressuring me to like get married. And, and my family is making this like big deal about why am I not getting married? Why am I not dating? Why am I not doing any of these things that like they it's quote unquote, like socially expected, like beating these like requisites of being a, uh, like a Christian, especially a guy. Why is he not doing all this? And everyone's putting this pressure. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, you're, it's just kind of the expectation. Like everyone's supposed to like do this. And I'm like, this was the beginning of the deconstruction of me. And it was just like, I couldn't do that. And at that point, like, I don't want to say my face started eroding, but it did start to like shake. And it was just mm-hmm. like, now I feel like, you know, after all these years of like being told that this was a good thing, being pure and abstinent and being chaste and, and celibate and, and not having sex. You told me these were good things. You told me this was a good thing I was doing. Now you're telling me I'm doing the wrong thing. Yeah, there there really is a a double-edged sword with that. Because on the one hand, one phrase that really stuck out to me, because I haven't heard it exactly phrased that way before, but was the, the gift of celibacy. Because I I haven't heard it phrased that way, but I have 100% had very religious people online contact me and say, well, if you don't feel, you know, your, your natural womanly instincts, then, then maybe you should be a nun. This is God calling you to a higher calling. And it's like, (laughs) no. (laughs) So I, I definitely know there are religious people who do think that way but when you know you you don't want to become a member of the cloth but you also don't want to enter into this societal expectation that you get a spouse and you procreate and you have the nuclear family then it's like where does that sort of leave you in the religious context because it kind of you kind of have to pick one in that sense is is what i'm hearing and i i did also like uh when you when you just considered yourself straight for a while because i think that's a really common experience as well not necessarily just straight but i know some aces who will even consider themselves to be bi just because they equally don't like both sides yeah. and it's it's kind of the compulsory sexuality of the world where you just are assumed to have a sexuality <laughs> and that you you will have these feelings so it's like well i i guess i can default to straight <laughs> but yeah. That's that's really, really interesting. So your family was pressuring you in your community. You felt this pressure to be a certain way. Yeah. How how out are you right now as an asexual? Do do your family and friends and local community know this part of you at this point? Um, yeah, the people who are in my life, they know. I've let them know before. I don't know how like they know or knowledgeable they are of asexuality. My friends definitely know. Like my friends are some of the coolest people. I just love them. Like they're awesome. Yeah, my friends are really accepting. Like they understand and they're very knowledgeable, like LGBTQIA plus topics. Anyway, some of them are also 
LGBTQIA themselves. So they know as well, like it's, it's kind of weird because like Broken Arrow and Tulsa are like really close, literally like in the same city. So like Tulsa has a huge LGBTQIA presence, which was amazingly felt this year and last year. Like we had the biggest pride festival we had ever had. And it was like everyone came together and there were ace, aces marching. So we were marching in the pride parade with everyone. And it was just like amazing. My friends understand and they're fully like supportive of me and they don't pressure me uh, to do like anything that I don't want to do because they understand like my boundaries and everything. Uh, they're totally respectful of that. And my family knows and they're respectful of that. Like I've let them know that it's just I have no intentions of that. I wouldn't say like they're heartbroken about it. Like my dad is just happy as long as I'm not getting into any trouble or any bad situations. My mom kind of is like worried because, you know, as moms always worried, they always worry when they're gone, like who's going to be there to take care of you um, mm. or who's going to be there to look out for you and, and stuff like that, which is another thing, you know, we talk about as societal culture being in the Bible Belt is that it is very, while we do have, I do have that great relationship with friends and family, which is why I love them so much. Breaking the amount of normativity is a huge factor, is a huge need because like relationships come in so many different forms. We talk about in the AIDS community, we talk about uh, queer platonic partners, QPPs. We talk about like, what's a, what constitutes a family? Is it just you're born of blood? Are you, you share genetics? like husband, wife, or partners, what what counts as a family? What counts as like your closest of bonds? Like I remember I never really liked the show because it was just always like every single episode seemed to have like a sex scene in it every time. But I do remember one episode of like Grey's Anatomy that mm-hmm. came out, which I remember when Sandra O's character, Christina, was going and having an emergency procedure. She listed Ellen Pompeo's character, Dr. Grey, and said, I'm going to need you for a person of contact for this surgery, in case something goes bad, I put your name down because you're my person. And she said, you're my person. And, you know, the relationship between those two have that kind of closeness and ability to have trust, that deep level of trust. Those are the things that matter most to me. It does not matter the relationship. As long as I like have such deep like trust and, and belief and confidence and intimacy with you, that's what matters most as a friend. And those are the kind of relationships that I look for. Like I've seen that. So in terms of being out, my friends know that and like trying to provide that relationship personally, that's kind of the hardest part of it all is like having someone because all of them are wanting to have like relationships and mates and stuff like that. So it does kind of leave you in an outsider category of, okay, do I, am I the third wheel, the third wheel, or am I like included in the conversation? Am I included in your life deeply like that? So and there, there is a real anxiety for people who don't want romantic relationships, whether they are explicitly aromantic, asexual, or if it's just not something that interests them, that they will sort of be left behind, as it were, that they won't be able to have friends who will sort of take that relationship to the next step and say, we are family, I will be there for you no matter what. But relationships like that do Yes. And and my sisters and me. (laughs) Relationships like that are so, so beautiful. And I, I have very deep friendships. I have, I mean, before getting married, I absolutely had, you know, queer platonic friends who we were each other's emergency contacts. And so I, I can definitely relate to that. And and you mentioned Grey's Anatomy. My brain kept going to Golden Girls. I grew up with Golden Girls. 
and that, with that. And that, that is beautiful. All of those elderly women living together who they, they usually did have very fulfilling sex lives. They were often in relationships, but at the end of the day, they were the family. They were the ones they came home to and were always there for each other no matter what. And I, I just adore that. And, and it really goes back to what you were saying earlier with like the friend zone. Like, why are we treating friendship like a consolation prize? It's, it's beautiful. It is not second fiddle to anything. Friendship can be anything you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I just love that. Uh, team Blanche, by the way, I just want to throw that out. <laughs> <laughs> really? Like, Your team Blanche? Yeah. But yeah. Golden Girls, Team Blanche, go ahead. Um, love, love the Golden Girls. But yeah, I just always took it in that direction. So I guess my Bible Belt experiences have been, in a way, I don't want to say the culture limits experiences like that. Like, I understand, like, this is the way they've done it. Because I understand, like, you know, I don't want to be the elitist snob, snobby person that like, you're horrible, your your views are, are horrible and shameful, and you you need to change and, and become a better person. And <laughs> My you know, views are more evolved. I'm cosmopolitan. I'm urbane. And, mm-hmm. you know, much more enlightened, obviously, right? So I don't want to do that. But I would say like in Bible Belt culture, especially when it comes to like, we talk about this often, like having families, it's hard. Like I understand like for non-heteronormative people or people who aren't in heteronormative relationships, but they're still like, we always have to talk about like, relationships come in so many different forms and they're all fulfilling. It doesn't, the people who are in it don't matter. It's the qualities of the relationship that count. And it's, that's the thing that like a lot of people don't understand. Like, no, 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 you have to be like this. You have to be like, it has to be this way. It has to look this way. It's got to look right according to my schema in my mind. Otherwise it's not right. And obviously like, you know, you can have so many different relationships that have the exact same qualities. And I guarantee you they would be just as fruitful as any. Um, we just don't allow them to like exist in the way that they should be allowed to flourish. For example, like if I were to buy a house, it would be hard for me to buy a house for one I'm single person but like if I put like a friend of mine and we were let's say two of us were I'm a guy and he's masculine identifying then that would be a little bit of a hard sell for a lot of people because it'd be like two people of the same quantifiably same gender living together even though it's just like doesn't have to be anything sexual or anything like that like a lot of people tend to make that assumption that if you're close with somebody it's a sexual relationship it's like it's not it's just that is such a weird assumption that yes, people do make. And when you're younger, it's especially if it's like a boy or a girl. And that starts even at yeah. like age three or four adults will be like, Oh, look, she, she's got herself a little boyfriend. But do, do yeah. you feel like because of that sort of societal decision that your intimacy can only go too far before it becomes romantic and or sexual because of that? Do you feel like it is harder for? I, I, I guess men to to have those deep friendships because I feel like the trope is that girls can be really close but boys mm. yeah I think it's the socialization factor of it I think it's just you know guys are not supposed to hug or anything like that or even had to come up with our own special hug like a bro hug like yeah yeah you know bro hug and be like it's not a hug it's a different type of it's a bro hug and you know bromances <laughs> and stuff like that 
we had to come up with bromances when in reality, it's just like, no, you just have a really great relationship with this other person. It's nothing to like apologize to try to, you know, explain away with connotation. It's just, you have a relationship with that person. Don't even like, if anyone tries to shame you, that's a, that's a reflection of them, mm-hmm. not of y'all. So why would being happy if they're trying to rain down on your parade, that speaks a lot to them about them wanting to be a rain cloud at that point. So, so uh that's i guess that's the factor we just always put in because like men can be women can be in relationships and they can have gal pals and you know girlfriend time and there's even a show called girlfriends that i watched uh when i was younger that was like you know just four women hanging out together sharing their stories and having fun it's like you know sex in the city was the same way so a bunch of women hanging out together just sharing their stories having fun and they were you know even their closer relationships were with each other even though they were having intimate sexual relationships with different you know men it was always the four of them together and it was never seen as like a, a sexual thing it was always just seen like that's just you know being crew that's their crew you know mm-hmm. they just hang out guys tend to guys have a even though i wouldn't say all guys do this like i'd say in different contexts it would be different like when i was on sports teams it was like you were a crew like because we were bonding over a sport or if you're like in a music group then you're bonding because you're a music group so like all four musicians like one direction four guys together and we're all you know in the same crew or bts we're all crew because we're four guys and we are musicians so we bond over a specific job or purpose whereas like women just bond because they like each other and just want to spend time with each other men always have to explain it with like a purpose as to why we're together and it's yeah, like yeah you, you need to like rationalize it to outsiders yeah which is something that i've always found like really limiting it's like we just hang out like the guys and i we hang out we go to trivia nights and i guess that's our specific purpose we love doing trivia nights and we're pretty good at it (laughs) not the most to brag (laughs) hey listen you can brag all you want (laughs) me dusting off my shoulders but yeah so we bond over that and we have bondships and stuff like that but we're also like we share a lot of like deep intimate things about each other like moments i i've seen my best friends at some of their hardest moments in life they've seen me at some of my hardest moments in life these are people like i could run to in a crunch to just be like i need some help right now like i need some something right now because i just could use that like that person to cry everyone should have that i think everyone deserves a, a community in that sense yeah we talk about that often like with men and lacking of relationships i was like reading a book about like men and not being able to be vulnerable and how to like a lot of psychologists tend to think that's why suicide rate for men is so much higher than for women even though like women may thoroughly more plan out suicides but the suicide attempt rate for men is much higher than women because it's just like we are less likely to do relationships we're more likely to be like loner wolves or lone rangers and we're that's how society tends to look at us and say like you got to do it solve your own problems and be a man and be tough and pull yourself up don't cry and don't be a wuss you know, I got those same things as well. I, whenever I used to cry, I go to, I get those same things also. Like, don't cry, don't be a wuss, gotta be tough, be a man, and those sort of things where we, we appreciate emotion in men, and then we tend to want men to be emotional, but you can't shame them at the same time mm-hmm. and say that men who are emotional or you, they want them to open up more and then say, like, you shame that whenever they do, right? So that's just, uh, I don't know, is that toxic masculinity? I'm not the person to ask that. I'm not a sociologist, but, um, you know, that's just personal personal trope on that and we like you got to have men have a parameter to open themselves up and then share and you can't just go back and shame them on that so that's another thing and framing that in the larger context 
with men in like my state, the the man's supposed to be like the provider, the winner, the the tough one and everything like that. And you know, when you're not that or you're not the toughest person, then they you know, the shame comes from that. And that's another thing of biblical, like Bible belt Christianity, I guess, in Oklahoma, which is like men are supposed to be like these conquerors, these go out and go get them. Cause there's like a weird trope of that coming back to like the sexual component. Like men are supposed to pursue the woman and like even though like there's a wink wink and a nod nod factor like women i know you explained it like you know women are supposed to be abstinent and chaste and everything but like guys are like there's a little bit of a weird notion within the culture well at large of like if a guy hasn't gone all the way with a woman by a certain age limit it kind of becomes weird i guess it's, it, it, it speaks to that whole aggressive dominance thing and like yeah, women don't, and it, women it's don't, contradictory because society does kind of tell you both things at the same time <laughs> Yeah. And, and it also is like very limiting, obviously, to a lot like to women who have a sexuality like, mm-hmm. you know, women are our targets and men are supposed to shoot them, I guess, shoot them down or something. I don't know how that's supposed to be. I don't even understand like conquest. Like I don't get like when are we playing war? What war are we in? Like <laughs> trying to figure that out. But it, like women have things done to them. Men do things, I guess, is another thing that a lot of people tend to have. Like I was reading articles from years ago about like men who didn't understand like women have like sexual urges as well. And they have different sexual like fantasies. And a lot of like men who grew up in church are like, I didn't know that was a thing when I was growing up. I just always thought like women were just like, you know, dainty and stuff like that. I remember hearing someone was talking about demisexuality is like so in other words that's just a woman and it's like Mm -hmm. no (laughs) obviously you've never met some of the women i've met because i've known some really sexual women in my life uh they love having sex and uh that whole pendulum curve of allowing people to be people that's one of the things that like in bible belt or conservative circles it's fulfilling the archetype not allowing the person to fulfill themselves that's the thing that like hurts me the most. And one of the things I wrote in my article, I'll link it. I'll link my article. Everything will be in the show notes for any of our listeners. So like that was one of the things when we were talking about like, okay, so men are expected to be really, 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 really sexual and women are expected to not be sexual, not even think about it. And like, there's obviously so much in the middle of like, everyone has so much and everyone has like sexuality so diverse that you can't just limit it in such a one size fits all category. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and it's it's all very gendered as well in these ideal religious family archetypes as well. It's this is the man's role, this is the woman's role. And not only is that difficult for everyone who doesn't feel like the man who's going to be the head of the household, he's going to be the religious leader for his family and the breadwinner yeah. and aggressively sexual. And the woman is going to be submissive. Like there are people who just have natural personalities that are going to go outside of those. But also, where does that leave all of the non-binary people? (laughs) Because that also is another complicating factor. Just queerness in general is really difficult when you put it in those religious contexts. And it it almost seems as well to me, I've I've noticed when, when you go back to the idea of chastity, where it's almost as if these religious circles are telling you, yes, you should have a sexual desire and you should suppress it. Almost like they want you to suffer like this is your religious penance until the time is right yeah i think like it's kind of weird it's like i've had a lot of people who when they had their first on their like wedding nights or heard of people like 
it was so difficult to let the cat out of the bag finally because it was like I was saying it was bad 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 and then you're expected to just turn the switch and be like it's on and um people were like I couldn't do that like it was just not easy for me there were so many things of like compatibility factors that this didn't get into this was one of the things that I was like I was really glad I didn't fulfill the script because I was like if I had gotten into a relationship with someone who was like really expecting that I wouldn't have been able to fulfill those expectations as a person as a, especially as someone who is male like I wouldn't be able to do that because I just don't even think about like wanting to have sex with someone not that I can't obviously like it's like not an impotency factor but it's just like that doesn't cross my mind to do that like the idea of me like wanting to do that because personally on my end I identify like I wouldn't say sex. I'd say I'm more sex repulsed. Like I'm not super like gross. I like, ah, like this is so disgusting. Like vomit. I think everything is disgusting or I think people are disgusting. It's just like, if it's me, I don't want any part of it. Like it, it's cool. Like you do you. It's great. And all that. If you want to do that, but it's like, for me, I'm just off the book. It's off limits. Like, mm-hmm. sorry, I'm not going to do it. It's like, like someone who would explain to me said like, if someone like a rare steak, and they like steak and it was rare with the blood in it. I'm like a person. Once I see blood, I'm like, I'm not going to touch it. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> once I see blood in it or something like that, it's like, and they like the steak completely rare and wanted to eat that. And then they said, you got to try it and you got to eat it and you're going to like it. That's where it's the dogmatism comes in. And it's like, no, I don't want that. I don't. Please don't. And it's like, keep it away. It's like, I've always had a thing where I never liked pizza rolls or like pizza squares, like those hot pockets and stuff like that. <laughs> I am not a person who ever liked those. I'm uh, sure people have given you plenty of guff over that because yeah. everyone <laughs> loves a good pizza roll, don't they? <laughs> yeah. So people are like, I try, I just got like, uh, like, no, if I wanted pizza, I'd actually just order a pizza and <laughs> I just order a pizza and just go get it. So I could never like eat those. And it's like, uh, I, I get kind of like, but like other people if they want to eat them go for them and i'm Mm -hmm. like go for it go ahead and have it i'm not going to shame you over it because like a lot of people who don't know asexuality or don't know what it means like are you going to shame us because you're not sexual you're going to shame me for my sexual purpose it's like no i have no desire to be your judge jury executioner because i am totally going to be the most imperfect one so yeah that's actually such a good metaphor for asexuality is what food do you not like because i i'm vegetarian i have been for like 17 years 18 years it's 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 been a minute and most people aren't going to intentionally be trying to shove meat in my face like holding the fork up to my mouth but there are some of them out there that have done that but a lot of people will at least be like but don't you like meat like but it's so good and it's like people do that with sex too like you don't it's like it's the best thing in the world yes i know it's (laughs) the greatest thing in the world yeah i've heard that so many times like but sex is like everybody loves sex and that's one of the things that like even in my bible belt circles like when i was going to school everyone's like everybody loves sex everybody loves sex everybody loves sex well apparently i'm nobody i don't hate sex obviously i don't have any relationship to it because obviously i've never done it but it's like i don't want to do it and but everyone says everyone's supposed to so that that little bit of part of me is still something I'm trying to break down to this day. It's like everyone keeps saying, like, you got to have sex. You got to do it. You got to go at least try it once. Right. You got to try it. Maybe you'll like it. Yeah. And that's something like you don't understand. Like, well, why would I of, if I just uh, don't want, want to? <laughs> yeah. Another thing is like there are plenty of things other humans don't try. I don't think most humans try skydiving out of planes. But, you know, no one says to someone who's ever skydived out of a plane, you've got to try skydiving. It's more like, okay, you like skydiving and I don't skydive. Cool. Or I don't think most people go 
do rodeo and try to bull ride, professional bull riding, right? But <laughs> which is a popular sport in Oklahoma, obviously. But you know, people who do professional bull riding, I'm not doing that. Once I see a bull, I'm getting out of the stadium. My sign is a Taurus. I'm not about to try to fight a bull, folks. No way. <laughs> no way. So if you like bull riding, go for it. No, if that's if that's something you love doing, go for it. It's just not going to be for me. <laughs> so I, I somewhat thing. grew up in the rodeo myself. I The only bulls I've ridden were mechanical, though. <laughs> yeah. So on that end, I guess that's kind of one of the things. And then also on the end of like, I wouldn't want to throw race into this, but also being black also kind of factors into that as well. Cause like, well, yes, that's, yeah. that was such an important intersection. I, w- I was hoping yeah. you'd bring it up. Cause I want to talk yeah. about that some too. Yeah. So like, obviously kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm a mixture of like so many different worlds. I'm like all different cultures heading at once, obviously coming from Bible Belt culture that influences me coming from the South that influences me coming from America that obviously influences me. And then also most importantly, I can't dismiss this because I will never be able to dismiss my skin tone. I'm black. So, and I'm obviously my race and the culture of being black in America also like factors in. So there's so many things you learn and being a black person, especially a black man, because that's also a big part of that as well. Black women have a different section. I know I'm not a perfect authority to speak to on that end, but as a black guy, I also get them as well because I grew up, you know, in the culture of like, I love music and I love hip hop, R&B, still love it, the culture and the art form. But it's when you grow up loving hip hop and R&B, you know, a lot of the music is going to be about like sex and and doing it, you know, romance, love, sex, all of that kicks in. And it's just something that is intrinsic. It's cultural because I mean, you know, it's a matter of normative. So it's across all cultures, but definitely in black culture, you know, being sexual is the expectation. And what are some, in in your eyes, what are some unique considerations about being a Black asexual man that you think that maybe the average white listener of this podcast might not have been exposed to? What is something about that intersection that we really need to talk about more? So I think for first off, I just think we got, we got to preface this. So my experience is my experience. So I'm not, you can run across a million black men and you'll get a million different answers, but I will speak on my own. So I know we're not monolithic in any way, shape or form. There are so many different shades of being a black person and, you know, the same type of black person that's like Usher. And then you have Katherine Johnson, you know, NASA scientist and hidden figures. So well diverse within even our own community that, and it's all black, all the same. But I do think in a similar factor, one of the things that I tend to run across, there's like two different types of black men that are kind of were portrayed on television when I was a kid. And I call it the Fresh Prince and Carlton effects. Um, <laughs> so the Fresh Prince was held as the cool guy, got all the ladies. He was a ladies man, particularly because it's heteronormative, obviously. So he was the cool guy, got all the mates, got all the attention, attraction. People wanted to be him. People wanted to be with him. He was the person that was like ran the show and was like the orchestrator. So like people were like, that's the person you want to be. Kind of like Eddie Winslow from Family. Matters. And then you have Carlton and Urkel. And <laughs> Carlton is like dorky, not really you know, smooth, kind of clumsy, awkward, kind of like Urkel was versus his Stefan counterpart, where he was like cool with the glasses and they had the fly outfits and dressed awesome. And Kurt Urkel wore the overalls and glasses and stumble with the, yeah, I do that. 
Yeah, it's like uh, there's a switch to flip. There's there's no in between. Yeah. yeah, so everyone kind of wanted to meet at, which is kind of funny because like Urkel had Laura and Myra, and I loved Myra actually better than I did Laura, but that's another thing. Um, but yeah, that's those, those are the two type of like stereotypes. Is like you got to be the really fly guy, or you're going to be the really like dork, mm-hmm. and there's like no middle ground of like of that, or you know, even breaking down what's wrong with being dorky or nerdy. There's nothing to feel ashamed about about being a nerd or being a dork or, you know, something like that. You know, we tend to look at, you know, those who are into like nerdy or pursuits like the academic studies, studious nerdy type and be like, not cool. I mean, I look at those, the people, the people that I looked up to as like some of the greatest heroes in the world were like super nerds and stuff like that. One of my biggest heroes of all time was George Washington Carver. And it, what he was doing as a scientist and able to break ground in the field of science was something that I always looked up to the same way I looked up to James Baldwin or Audre Lorde, uh, how they changed using like art and poetry. And I thought those people were cool and stuff like that. But a lot of people like looked up to artists and musicians. And I have no shame of doing that because I'm like, I looked up to the same artists as well. Like my favorite artist growing up was Usher. Every wedding has probably played Yeah at a, at a wedding before. Yeah. And uh, I used to sing and dance to Usher when I was younger. So I remember, which is kind of funny now looking back, but I did like, I looked up to that. Then I got older and like things kind of changed and I wanted to be like more of the people I was studying, like Ralph Bunch, who was the first African-American man to win Nobel Prize. And he helped uh, negotiate the uh, peace accords between Israel and Palestine and kind of settled that uh, the area for the moment between Israel and Palestine. So Ralph Bunch was actually one of the first men to win, first black men to win a Nobel Prize. And I look up to them and I say, wow, those are incredible heroes. And I'm like, you know, including that in the fabric of conversation, what it means to be black and what it is to define black. I don't want to say like we've defined it bad, like I'm kind of saying the culture, but like the definitions of what it means to like be truly black or black, black, like uh, we've had to discuss. And I'm not the person to be the one to have that discussion, obviously, because it's like it's a discussion we all got to have. But like when we define what it meant to be black, we always meant it to be cool. Like, you know, orange is the new black. So black means to be cool. But really, black is our experience, my experience through those lenses. That's one of the things that I think we have to like get out of the context of thinking it's like being black is cool. Rather, it's just my lived experience. And it's all the things that come from being it, which is, you know, I'm black, I'm asexual. That frames a lot of different things, especially when I like am culturally involved, like being involved in the culture, because like so much of the culture is determined by like sexual prowess. And like your worth is defined by your sexuality. So it's like one of those things of like we're breaking even a stereotype, a super stereotype in terms of black asexuality, which comes from a long history. And I just find I actually discussed that in my article about like the history of like, like being black is seen so stigmatizing in terms of sexuality because it's like we've had that wasn't even defined. Even our parameters weren't defined for a long time by ourselves about being black and, and all that, because, you know, you look at the Jezebel myth and the you look at birth of a nation and how that was defined, defining black, which was like black and sexual and then aggressive and dangerous and stuff like that. 
Yeah, I'm I'm glad you you mentioned, you know, the the Jezebel stereotype because the the really unfortunate thing is the sort of branding of minority identities, which is a, a tool of white supremacy. It isn't itself an issue, but here you are at the beginning of this saying like, this is my experience, we're not a monolith, but the the really unfortunate truth is that broader society will see a minority person and decide this isn't a single individual. This is a representative of their entire race or their entire ethnicity. And when it comes to Black bodies, usually gendered Black women and Black men, society has its own stereotypes for those as well, which are very often centered around their relationship to sex. Yes. And could could you describe just for any listeners who maybe aren't aware of the Jezebel stereotype, sort of what that entails? Yeah, I can do that. I'll take a little story time. My friends and I went to a museum in Minneapolis, the Minneapolis Museum of Modern Art, which is incredibly credible. Loved it. Loved the trip. Loved Minneapolis. We did it in the uh, in December, right as it was snowing, 10 inches of snow. We went to the uh, museum. <laughs> Sounds like uh, Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. And it was beautiful. And there were art paintings from contemporary African-American painters for discuss about different stereotypes. And one of the pictures was uh, titled Jezebel. It was a woman who was lying back, basically kind of lying there. And it was in a sultry kind of pose, kind of like the sultry vixen stereotype. When I was growing up, there was this thing called the video vixen or the hip hop honey what they called on that end. Like, you got to be a honey or a video vixen because it was like the women in like hip hop music videos, they would always feature like some woman, you know, usually like twerking or like shaking the derriere or or something like that, being really sexually like engaged or like the focus would be on the woman trying to be like super sexually enticing. That was the stereotype. Like it was seen as a warning though, especially as a tool of white supremacy it was a warning tool for like men stay away from her mm. because she'll take you down and she'll lure you into her evil clutches and she'll ruin you and take you down like a, a bird to a snare trap. Mm. And it's like one of those things of like, those are dangerous women. And it frames like black women's sexuality as something dangerous, especially like there are two different types of black women that are usually framed as like, if they're like attractive by conventional modern beauty standards, they're the Jezebel. They're the person you got to steer clear of. Their sexuality is super aggressive, violent, or not really violent, but more like a trap. Like we call thirst traps now. I guess we've got. Yeah. Like, like we, we got thirst traps now. So I guess the trap, uh, mm-hmm. like the trap is laid and then they pull you in and you got to, you know, you got to steer clear of them because they'll like take your, take your, I guess, moral virtue or something. And then you have the mammy, which is like the heavyset black woman who's like only there to cook and clean and do dishes and laundry and not really possessing a sexuality at all because no one would think of wanting to be sexual with her. Mm-hmm. Really? It's kind of like the, I, I remember when the Betty Boop came out, Betty Boop cartoon came out and actually there was actually a model of Betty Boop who was a black woman with the curves and everything. Mm-hmm. And that was actually kind of what the stereotype of Betty Boop, she was supposed to be like that look of like the Jezebel kind of the snare trap, but she was obviously made white. So it was a little bit more, you know, just like attractive without being seductive, you know, all the negative things thrown at. Um, it's the, it's the difference between like the evil seductress and like the pinup girl, <laughs> like yeah. P- yeah. white, white pinup girls are allowed to be sexy, but still retain a level of innocence in the eyes yeah. of society. Yeah. Like Judy Garland was a known hardcore drug addict. 
and she had like cocaine addictions, I think. But then Billie Holiday is the stereotype enemy and has to be taken down with her opium addictions. Watching the United States versus Billie Holiday, Andre did an amazing portrayal of that. But that's that's the portrayal. Like Judy Garland can be an addict and we got to help her get over her addiction. But Billie Holiday, she's just a druggie with nasty intentions. So we can't really do anything for that. And that's that's the thing for the double standard for being Black, especially as a woman with a sexuality. Meanwhile, as a guy, there's the Mandingo myth, which is you're supposed to like be really buff, strong, like keep your women away from them because they'll like try to go after your woman or something like that. They'll take your woman, you know, the black man and the, as a slave master and the white woman sleeping with them and stuff like that. Or that that's kind of the thing about it. We always talk about those different stereotypes. I mean, what Thomas Jefferson had like six kids from Sally Hemings, who was a slave. And that's something that's not often just liking to be discussed in history because like we like to hold up pure virtue and innocence of great leaders and our leaders tend to be always white. But the woman is, you know, especially if she's black, she's the blame, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously that's something. The woman did it. And especially if it's like the woman is black, then it's she really did it and she's awful and evil for it. And then if it's on the other end, black men are just naturally aggressive, super sexual predators, stuff like that. So when they meet me, obviously, like, it's a bust of a stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when it's asexuality in black culture, it's a huge bust of a stereotype. Because it's like, I've always known. And I remember I was just watching Blazing Saddles last week with my mom. I was watching Black Blazing Saddles because we love Blazing Saddles. You know, even as offensive as that, you know, that would be, we still just find the humor and jokes and and stuff like that. But, you know, looking back in the history and culture and context, because it was supposed to make fun of that, you know, it was supposed to make fun of satire of mm-hmm. the racism and like certain parts of like the Wild West in America, like, you know, having a black sheriff. And uh, I remember when the burlesque dancer tried to uh, lure the sheriff into the sheriff who was black into her dressing room. And then she closed, closed at the door to try to get a, a trap. And she goes, she flicks the light and she she says, is it true what they say about you black men that you're all gifted? Mm. And it's like, oh, you are, you are gifted. And it's like, that's a obviously a portrayal to something else, not going to a little bit of a you know hot warning, you know, about yeah, I, I about mean black bodies. men are also fetishized in that sense in, in yeah. society as well. Yeah, so I mean that's something that is there's even that's even something like I've heard in like talking about even in circles like in porn circles, like in the porn world, they say something called like the BBC, which is, you know, I'm not gonna say the whole acronym on this uh podcast. <laughs> I will Google that later. (laughs) Because I will say it on this podcast, but let's just say it has something to do with uh, certain uh, anatomy features. Oh, I Uh, think I just figured out what it is. Gotcha. I'm I'm on the same page. Certain anatomical features that, uh, you know, African-Americans like myself, (laughs) African-American, you know, males like myself are supposed to be endowed with. Let's just say that. Endowments. I see. Um, it's it's the uh, we're getting, acronym we're getting, of once you go black, you never go back. Yeah, gotcha. we're going, we're going, <laughs> we're circling all around this. We're just not going to say, OK, but yeah, that's even a thing that, you know, for a black person, that's the thing, because it's always about like our body. It's never about like our minds. It's never about our, you know, internal beings, who we are, our personalities. Like the thing that most people will think about is like, are you 
like if you're really athletically gifted. So then like I play basketball. So I guess I did do the basketball part, played sports. I was an athlete. I love sports. So I'm a big junkie on that end. But it's like, you know, you're really athletically gifted and you have certain body parts that are like the gold, you know, and I'm not going to you know do anything on my end to talk about that. But that, that's the thing about it is that it's our bodies, it's our, our bodies are commodified, are uh, fetishized, sexualized from a very young age. And when it's like, when you come out as asexual, it's like a lot of people have a hard time believing that black people can even be asexual because it's like, mm-hmm. no, nah, no, nah, that's not a thing I never thought black people could be because it's like, you know, black people are just, they are, they're just supposed to be sexual. That's what black people are supposed to be. You know, I've always learned that it's the stereotype about it. And it's like, well, I, I guess I'm totally different. I'm the one, right? <laughs> yeah. And those, those stereotypes, because as, as awful as it is, yeah. if, if someone who has only been exposed to stereotypes and, and hasn't really existed in Black culture or had really deep, meaningful relationships with Black people in order to learn these things, someone could meet someone like you or another Black ace person. And if, if their stereotypes are all revolving around sex, they could so easily, unfortunately, write you off and use that as like, oh, no, no, that can't be true. And and it's why it's so important for there to just be more representation of real people like you putting yourself yeah. out there so other people can see the, the diversity in the Black community and the asexual community. But it's also so important to get more diversity in just media representation. Mm-hmm. And you wrote a fabulous article about celebrating Mm -hmm. black asexuality in media so what can you tell us a little bit about the importance of that and what you have and have not seen so far yeah so like when i was growing up there were no like asexual characters on television there was i mean i was growing up in the advent when i turned 19 i think the big bang theory came out and sheldon was like seen as the asexual character which was problematic because it was like Mm. sheldon dexter sherlock were all like really really awkward like especially pale white characters and i don't want to get into like race and like say that's the bad things of having like white asexuality i think we should have white. all people should be allowed to be asexual in themselves and that was one of the things about it that was really scary because it was like, okay, there were no asexual people that looked like me. Growing up, when I was turning on the television, I would turn on like music videos. Every music video was talking about like trying to get a girl to twerk it, you know, be a stripper, you know, you know, slide down the pole, drop it low, pop that, you know, all that stuff, sort of stuff and, and you know, uh, show off your body. And, you know, that's what they told you you have to do to be a, a man, especially a black man. Like that's your worth, that's your dominance, that's your way of attaining power and status and acceptance in the world. No one was asexual sexual and black on television. They just weren't. I didn't see anyone who was like that. I would have loved to have seen someone who's just like that because it would have been like validation for me because I grew up just so, so confused. Like, I'm not like any of these people on TV. I'm not like this person, that person. They, they just, I don't feel like I belonged anywhere. And then I went to school and I didn't feel like I really belonged. Like most of my town is like 97% white, something like that, like maybe 98, 97. And I obviously wasn't white. And, and all the people that I grew up with who were also like that, everybody was having sex and everybody was trying to have sex. And 
I didn't feel like I belonged there. So I felt like I was really out of place. Like, where's the person who looks like me and is like me? And where am I going to find that at? And I went through all my high school just feeling so, you know, out of place, really kind of took a long, like finding confidence in that. And then it took me years. And while I thought I was at 19, but everyone kept trying to say, no, 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 asexuality is not real. It's not real. Like, no, you're just going to, you'll find someone someday. You'll change. You'll change when you meet the right person or something like that. And years later, I never found anybody because I was like, this is just, I don't know what I am. And finally, I came along to it and found out I was asexual. And it took a long time for me to even accept it because I was like, I don't know. I've never really seen anybody who's like me be asexual. I'm like the one black person out of a million, you know, to be asexual. And there was just weren't. I would have loved to have seen an asexual character on television or in music. You know, maybe I need to become an asexual musician or something like that. I just got to get the skills to form a band and be the lead singer. I can sing, but I just need a band <laughs> behind me. So we so. would support and retweet. And once things are a little safer on the pandemic, we would come down to Oklahoma to see your show. I would love to see that. We need an ace. Yes, ace man. musicians. Yes. We need an ace. We need an ace band. We need to like form an ace band right now. I could be lead singer. I can do the singing and all that. I can do the singing. Anybody can play a couple of instruments. We got a couple of people with instruments. You know, we can form a band. Once we need to upon put this a time, vision. once upon a time, I've I've lost all my instrumental skills. I've I've been in a few bands before, usually in vocal, but I did play bass in a metal band, and I played bass in a punk band, and then I played drums in a glam band for a brief period of time but but it, it's it's mostly vocals for me right now and i'm sure you are a better singer than i am <laughs> we'll have to put those to the test but I, yeah, how, how about this if you we'll, if you we'll make the ace band and and I, I will be like the the vocal guest on a track <laughs> we'll need to we're putting a petition out there if you are a musician and you're ace we need you now we're putting in registrations just make sure you have to put an audition tape, a demo tape. Make a demo. Yeah, and then let's, we'll, we'll, let's, we'll make a let's band. Let's get it. I'd, I'd love it. A full ace band. That'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that'd be awesome. So I, yeah, when I was going, there just weren't, there just wasn't like a, a musician, a band, anyone on television, anyone in media, anyone like there weren't many, really any books or literature characters that I could think of that were asexual in any nature. Like everybody was like, this is, it really made it seem like we were not only incredibly invisible, but it was just made it seem like not only were we not worthy of focus, like un- like they people thought it was unimportant, which is totally lie because we're way important. And we had so much of the conversation about sexuality. And that's one of the reasons I love being asexual myself. But it just made it seem like this is something that no one is allowed to be, you know? It's like no one is even allowed. Like, it's just like, yeah, we don't put this in visibility because, like, no one, like, we don't think, we don't see anybody like that or no one does anything like that. But it just made it seem like no one's even allowed to be it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, wait a minute. No, it was like an enforcement. Cause we talk about compulsory sexuality, like everyone has to be sexual in some way. And it just made it seem like no one was ever allowed to step outside those parameters and make a new paradigm. And it just made it seem like for me, I had the doubts of myself because I was like, well, I don't see anybody like this. I don't even see myself in any of this. Am I even real? Am I even existing? And I had you know, doubts. I questioned everything. I thought, was I gay? And then I thought like, no. And it's like, maybe I just have like some deep rooted insecurities or some sort of issue inside. And I was like, 
No, like obviously people who have insecurity still have sex, obviously, but it's like, this is me, it's me. And, and it's like, when you don't see that, when you don't see yourself represented at all, it just feels like you've been erased out. Like you, you're not even counted as a whole person mm-hmm. in some way. It's like, that was one of the things that, you know, gets in me. And I'm, I'm glad we've come how far we've come. Yeah, obviously, we've come a long way. We've made great strides in representation. We're getting a lot more representation. But most of it is really internet-based. As much as I love internet and most people are just on internet, so that's really important. I would love to just have like a television show, the way Pose was for the drag culture and how important it was to like open people to drag and to seeing a transgender person for the first time. Like, wow, there are people, they're normal people like me instead of just like stigmatizing or, you know, erasing or invalidating or, you know, xenophobically otherizing. Like, I don't know if those people are, those people are. You know, I posted a tweet a long time ago, a long set of tweets about like how asexual discrimination in like media and stuff like that really factors in to see like this is really problematic. Like people start seeing us as less human. They see us as alien, like not from like a third kind, close encounter of a third kind. And that's one of the things that for me, I can't wait. And I would love to be like helping create that like representation for someone else to be like, hey, I'm asexual. I'm here. We exist. We're real. You know, to be honest with you, like Yasmin Benoit was that for me, seeing a mm-hmm. Black woman doing what she was doing and taking on all the stereotypes helped me come out as me. And um, she always says, you know, in, in interviews and articles, the same thing. We're growing up. She didn't see anyone like her. So that is, that is the common thread here for sure. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, seeing more of us come out, there's power in numbers. There's power in visibility. It's just not, it can't be quantified. We all talk about, there was a literal will and grace effect that happened. I know a lot of people, you know, we could get into like problematic stereotyping of will and grace and, and, you know, do a complete breakdown of will and grace. But what it did, will and grace saw was its positivity was that it saw people who are gay, people who are gay Mm -hmm. as just people, Mm -hmm. just like me, just like anyone else. We have, we live life, you know, hey, people, we just live life. Like, it's just help everyone see, like, there's not a boogeyman to it. There's not a, okay, problematic, or I'm deeply, you know, scared of this person thing, uh, because I don't know who they are, or I really don't know much about them. It provides knowledge. It provides awareness. Now you have someone you could put a face to mm-hmm. movement. You could put a face to who we are as an orientation. It's like, yeah, I know that that is this person and they are cool and I like them and I like, so then I like this person. And, you know, that is a, that there's no, like a lot of people are saying like, how do you change attitudes? That's one of the biggest ways of doing that. And I just would love to see like asexual representation. And, you know, that's why like Legends of Tomorrow when Spooner came out, there was so much validation. People were just like, you know, I remember a lot of people was like, she came out as asexual and that just gave such a boost in the arm. Like, I feel happy that someone did that. When Jaden Animations came out mm-hmm. as asexual and Arrow Ace mm-hmm. in her video, a lot of people were like, I felt that way too, where I just didn't see anybody for a long time. And then I didn't know how I was and this is how I felt. And everyone's like, I did that too. I was like that too. And allow people to finally come out and be their true nature. And I just don't understand why anybody would feel the need to try to hide that. <clears throat> Ron DeSantis. <laughs> 
it's you're you are so right it is so important and when when you talk about you know spooner and jaden animations obviously we have a fictional story versus a real person but they're also existing in two very different sort of niches jaden animations is huge on youtube if people aren't into animation or don't really engage in youtube i'm sure plenty of people have never heard of her spooner that's a very specific genre that not everyone engages in and that's why it's important to have so much diversity and yeah. where the representation is coming from too because i'd love to see it in all areas just like you said like ace musicians would be a new sort of thing that i haven't seen on a wide scale yet because yeah. there there yeah. are smaller especially in like young adult queer fiction there there's a lot of representation in young adult queer fiction novels but that's not a demographic for everybody yeah, and it's it's more about like it's exposure and airtime. I think is a huge factor. Mm -hmm. Like I remember last year, I, as I follow sports deeply, I remember last year right at the beginning of Pride, the football player from the Raiders, his name is Carl Nassib. He came out as gay. Uh, he came out at a time there had been obviously more gay players, gay NFL players, but he came out during when he was playing and he was in the league and he still is in the league. And Carl came out, didn't have to do it, didn't do it in a like grand gesture. He just came out, put an Instagram, said, I felt like it was the right time for me to finally come out, you know, to finally open up and just feel at peace of what I'm doing because I just feel like it's necessary. But one of the things he also said why he came out was because he wanted other gay players who play, whether they're in high school or pop or, you know, high school or college or, you know, wherever they're playing at, you know, athletes who are, you know, supposed to be under this code of silence, strict code of silence, like, like a don't ask, don't tell sports world because, you know, you come out as gay and it's supposed to like ruin your career. You get kicked off of teams. You no longer employed that most teams will steer clear drafting you or signing you as a player to join their team it was one of those things of you keep it hidden and maybe after your career is over you say something but you know he did it in the middle of his career because he wanted so many players to like realize you can be a football player and you can be gay and it doesn't have to be one or the other like you don't have to lose your collective i guess soul being a football player and go in the closet but you can also be a really great player and still be gay and it doesn't the two of them can fit and make work exponentially they're both parts of you you're a football player that's your job but you're also a human being and a lot of people took that and I remember one tweet saying that like all it took was one adult, one, just one a supportive adult at school. And the risk of suicide for LGBTQIA people went down 40%. And he posting that out was the reason why he did that. He donated like $100,000 to the Trevor Project. And I think like to put that in the mindset, because I know a lot of people got angry about that. Like there are certain certain mm -hmm. sections of the population that get angry about anything LGBTQIA people are doing. Whether we're Especially doing Especially lately, it seems. Yeah. But that's kind of one of the reasons why, like, it matters to still get representation in airtime, no matter what the pushback is. Like, one of the mm -hmm. things I, I see is, like, you don't want the waters to recede because we're talking about human decency. You can't recede on human rights and human decency. You just can't. You have to hold the line. And I remember when Ellen came out with her television show, she came out as gay. And, you know, we could talk about Ellen DeGeneres and everything else. But when she came out as gay, I remember when right wing groups tried to take her show off the air immediately when she did that. There were a her lot of career critics. did take a hit right yeah, off yeah. the 
that. It and took some time between coming out before uh, she became and, the Ellen yeah. DeGeneres who had the talk show. Yeah, because like Christian groups, like I, I don't say Christians, but like there were right wing Christian groups that I know by name. And I, when I was in church, I remember running into that were like, take this off the air because it's like, this is wrong. It's an abomination and stuff like that. All the religious language, you know, shrouded and just I don't like it which is just shrouded in, I just don't like it. Take it away because I think it's icky to me. Um, But that's the thing that we ran into. I was just recently reading about a Kay Jewelers ad that got pushed back because they had two men buying rings and they were like, no. And it's like, if you don't want to see it, just turn the channel. If you don't watch it, then don't watch it. You know, and I mean, I could always complain about that because people are always talking about offending people's sensitivities. I'm from Oklahoma. You drive down the highway, there's usually a Jesus billboard (laughs) (laughs) when you drive. There's a Jesus billboard. Something Mm -hmm. like text one if you want to go to heaven, text two if you want to go to hell. Yep. And and, uh, that's kind of how that goes. Drive anywhere in the state, you'll find like a Jesus billboard. So that no one complains. And yet people aren't allowed to complain about that. But yeah, that's representation, though, on that end, because Ellen's talk show helped people kind of get to know other people who are lesbians and other people who are like, okay, well, lesbians are just like anyone else. Because, you know, the lesbian panic was like, they'll they'll sleep with anybody really promiscuous and stuff like that. It's like, lesbians are just people who are just attracted. Or like when, you know, even just not even talking about like sex, like, Take, for instance, Penn and Teller when they came out and both Penn and Teller, I think, are both atheists and seeing Penn and Teller like these guys are just cool. I didn't think, you know, or Stephen Fry or Ricky Gervais. And I could get into the problematic parts of like Ricky Gervais for as long as it can be. But like Ricky Gervais, like hosting the Golden Globes was just like he's just funny and people just like him. And it has nothing to do with religion or George Carlin being an atheist. Like these are just funny people and they make a lot of points. There's not that much different. And people saying what's different down to the nuts and bolts of things is very minute, mm-hmm. very small. What different between us? Well, because we're all human. We all have human based needs, wants and hopes for ourselves. And all we want in the same life is usually the same things that we both want. We just tend to divide by that, usually either by politics or religion we're all human. We all have the same wants uh, and needs and same, well, universally to be accepted as who we are is at the top of the list. And representation helps people see that, you know, this is just who we are as human beings, which is why they don't even want us to have it. Some people don't even Mm. want us to have it Mm -hmm. because they know they see us as normal and they see the truth of that. We're just normal. It takes the power away from them to stigmatize. Yeah. Such good points. Thank you for that. And <laughs> you you mentioned the billboards, so I would be remiss if I didn't just like mention our little billboard anecdote because I came from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We're down in the Kansas City area now, so we've frequently made the drive between Kansas and South Dakota, and it's a whole lot of nothing, but the billboards are so wild, and I feel like people outside of the Midwest or outside of the Bible Belt probably wouldn't really understand, but when we're driving between Kansas and South Dakota, the billboards you see will be like, God hates you, followed by Jesus saves, followed by like, sex shop next right. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh man, that is literally <laughs> a thing. That is so a thing, which is, I, I mean, it is kind of funny. We do talk about like sex and religion kind of being tied together because that actually is kind of funny because like the amount of people who've been caught like in religious circles doing like that because it's so repressive. <laughs> um, it's so, it's meant to like be so confining that like any, like any ability to like let loose or have fun with it. You know, you almost have to step out of the religion altogether to even get to the fun part. Like, that's what, like, like, I've I've always said it like this. And it's like, people are really uptight about all that. I'm I'm just always concerned. Like, what do you, like, if you're trying to represent for God and you're this, who'd want to (laughs) join? Who'd want to join at that point? Oh, yeah. You, you don't have to tell us. We are very close to Westboro. (laughs) Yeah. Ooh, man. Yeah. yeah. Living in Kansas those two years, I had, we had to avoid that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, I was like, who'd want to join in? Like, all the people would see is nothing but pure hate. hate. And, and if mm-hmm. all the people see is hate, then where do they see you have love in your heart? Because mm-hmm. it's not really there. It's hard to have a lot of love when you're always hating something, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's a big key factor into everything else. The representation, uh, not only making it well-rounded, because it just can't just be like stick asexual person in one episode done. It has to be yeah. like, you know, showing there's a, a journey of a, of a person, um, a growth, a metamorphosis, an evolution. It has to be a person people can love, people want to uh-huh. root for and can get behind because that's that's yeah. where empathy comes from when you see a character that you just love, yeah. even if there's a part of you that you're still learning about, mm-hmm. a part of them that you're still learning about, or you don't totally understand. Like if you love them, that's yeah. the first step. Yeah. It's it's really one of the key factors on it. I mean, I I don't under want to undersell like real human representation. Like actual humans still make an actual absolutely massive worth. Like when it, especially like we could talk about transphobia and like how like particularly it's. I think there was a study that said like three out of ten people have ever met a trans person before. Mm. So that's something we could like talk about and how stigmatizing like not meeting someone tends to lead to greater stigmatization because if you never met them you've never had to brush shoulders with them you've never had to shake hands with them or walk next to them then you are more likely to like have different opinions because you're always at a distance with them Um, all you have to go off of are the stereotypes at that point yeah i always say like this because i come from a religious family so um i and i tend to know the bible pretty well because we had to read it quite often one of the things that uh, happened when Peter denied Jesus was that he was at a distance. Think of that. He denied knowing Jesus at a distance. Mm. When he was close, he couldn't deny it. But mm. when he was at a distance, he did. So that's another thing. That's just some living distance from other people, getting to know other people. That's another thing of like trying to section off in like Bible Belt country and brain drain and stuff like that. Like it makes people like less likely to congregate in areas so everyone can like get to know multifaceted experiences. And when you get one perspective for your whole life, which I did, I never met, I hardly ever met any gay people in my town. There was like one or two that were out. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that like most people didn't even want to get around. It was kind of like moonlight in that way where everyone kind of like knew like people were gay, but like it was the thing you dare not speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you have that, it only leads to further harm for everyone else. And I always say it to like my allies, my straight friends and or, who are allies. It's like, this hurts you too. 
this, these bills and stuff like that, that are coming out, all the stuff that's going on in the country, it hurts you in the long run too. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just hurt us. It hurts you because you're now losing the ability to gain like great perspective from us. And not only is that, it also limits the ability to gain great perspective on how you work. Yeah. Because we're opening, as we open up, we open up the box so you can live in it. Mm-hmm. So you can live out of it. You know, when I was like growing up, I had to feel like the need to be like, really, you had to live up to that stereotype of being a black guy and really like really aggressive. And, and you had to act tough. And as the saying, you know, as we say in black folks, you got to be, you got to be hard. You got to be hard. And that was something like, you know, I could never do that. I was never, I'm from a suburb. I'm from the burbs. <laughs> I'm like, I am not a tough guy. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that probably five-year-olds could beat me in a fight. But I mean, let's just, you know, throwing that out there, hand on Bible. I'm not going to fight a five-year-old, but I am, I am totally a pushover when it comes to getting in fights. I've never been in a fight. I'm not trying to get into fights. I am not gangster either. So you don't expect me to brag about like me, you know, shooting guns and talking about like I'm from, uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> something like that. That is not me. Not me. I am from the Burbs. I lived in the Burbs all my life. I am just a uh, the black nerd from the suburbs. And uh, that's <laughs> who I am. You know, I, I can't fake it. And uh, I don't have shame in it. You know, a lot of people like you live in the Burbs and stuff like that. You No, I, I take great pride in that. You know, my parents raised me in a really good home. And, you know, I don't I can talk about the culture I was raised in, but I do love my family, what they did. So they were really great. And we had our problems and stuff like that, like everyone else. But I do love that they raised me in it. But it did. It was a very strong limit on like getting to know everything else out there. And when you get one perspective only and not learn other people's vistas, it robs you of the beauty of life. Learning everything else about me, learning that I was asexual, asexual has opened my world. It's opened myself to be me. It's made me more confident me. It's made me a better me. It's made me less inhibited in my own self. That's beautiful. I do think our time is is starting to come to an end, which I'm I'm upset about. This has been such a wonderful, wonderful conversation, but I definitely do want to ask if there are any specific final thoughts you want to make sure you get out, if there are any projects or places people can find you that you want to plug. Yeah. Well, I guess the one thing I'll just say is you just got to get to know us. Just get to know us. And if I'm the one that you like need to get to know uh, asexual through asexuality or what you want to know about asexuality and you come across as like, I've never heard this and you just want to learn a little more, I'm willing to educate you. And I think that's something that's like often lost in this is like so many people may not even be educated on issues. And if you're new to this, like I was and like so many of us were it takes time to learn it. And I'm willing to walk you through it. I'm always willing to take anybody's hand and be like, let me walk you and teach you about what asexuality is. Let me talk to you. As long as you just got a receptive ear and are willing to listen. I, I know a lot of people, because this comes off as like, are you just hating on this culture or are, are hating on Bible Belt culture? It's like, no, no, I don't. I really think there's just a lot of, I think every culture has its benefits, beauty, and it's bad, you know, good and bad. And I think you're going to meet people as people are people, you know, regardless of culture. And if you're just willing to listen and just be like, let me teach you about this. I'm willing to be the one and I'm willing to go out there and be like, let me teach you a little bit and I will educate you. I've done education talks before on asexuality. Speaking of which, TED Talks, if you ever need a person for asexuality, look for me. 
Okay. Yeah, I'll vouch for that. That'd be great. So so I am always willing to educate and teach and have everyone learn about asexuality and just just about uh, sexuality and gender identity in general. Uh, I'm all about it and I'm I'm here for it. So just get to know us. Uh, come to us if you need any answers. Don't like claim to be an expert or say like, I learned about this from someone who's not even a representative or someone who obviously might have an agenda to push or something like that. That's how like phobia kicks in is when like people claim to speak, but then like they don't really know about the issue. Like we know the issue. I'm not saying like other people don't or are like really good experts. They're a really great scientist. Dr. Bogart, Dr. Brado uh, in Canada are doing incredible work. I talked with my friend who's do, who just did an expose paper, but like come to know us too. Like, come to know us as well. We can help you out a great deal. And if you are looking to find me, just find me anywhere. Like on Twitter, I'm most active. So you can find me Twitter, uh, handle name, Tiger Songbird. I consider myself the songbird. There's a long story behind the name. If you want to learn that, I could teach you about why I named myself Tiger Songbird. And you could just kind of find me and we could have a good discussion and talk more. And I'm always willing to chat with you. Sometimes I come off a little bit, <laughs> a little bit aggressive on my talks, but hey, I'm always willing to have an ear. And if you're just willing to have a just sit, genuine, genuine sit down conversation with me, I'm here. So, and I think any ace, if you're not too well versed on asexuality, feel free to come to us and we, we got you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And again, for all of our listeners, we are going to have all of those social media handles, links to the articles we've referenced. Those are all going to be in the show notes. And we'll, we'll also be sharing some things out on our Twitter at the Ace Couple as well. So if you're already following us there, then we'll, we'll get you hooked up with Tiger Songbird as well. So it, it was such a pleasure. This has been a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you again for joining us. And until next time, we will talk at you guys all later.